This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you could join us today. We have with us today Dr. Robert Haley, who is with UT Southwestern. He's been a guest previously, and we're going to talk to him about vaccines. Welcome to the show, Dr. Haley. Happy to be here. Dr. Haley, there's a lot of information out about vaccines, some on social media, some accurate, some not accurate. So we're going to ask you some direct questions. Some people are hesitant to get a vaccine. If vaccines are available, regardless of whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, or Janssen, as we know, if you're offered one of those vaccines, should you hesitate to take it? Absolutely not. I like to say that the the vaccine that's best for you is the one that you're offered first. No, people are concerned or expressing concerns about theoretical uh, risks that there might be. There's plenty of evidence now that those are not true, and uh, these are among the safest vaccines ever produced. And, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna are using a new technology called messenger RNA vaccine, and they use a very clean method that transmits no part of the virus. That's important to know. This is not a killed virus or a live virus. There's no nothing live in there that can infect you. All it is is from ingredients off the shelf. They cook up this vaccine, and it stimulates your body to produce very strong, very broad immunity to these coronaviruses. Uh, and it has virtually no side effects for the vast majority of people who take it. So they are safe. They're very effective. And uh, whichever one you get offered, take it. Dr. Haley, some people, when I talk to them, are very hesitant to get the flu vaccine. They have allergic reaction. They say, the egg in the vaccine bothers me. Is there any egg in this COVID-19 vaccine? No, these are all medicines, uh, components of medicines off the shelf that are put together just in the right way to stimulate your immunity but there's no eggs, there's nothing to be uh, allergic to for the vast majority of people. Now, there is, uh, has been one uh, serious side effect, and uh, both of the vaccines have this, but it's extremely, it's like one in a million people. It's very, very rare, and that's an immediate, what they call anaphylactic reaction. But it's an immediate reaction that occurs within the first 10 minutes. Uh, So you'll know. So uh, that's why all the places that are administering the vaccine have a nurse or doctor on site uh, with the antidote ready to go. And if you happen to experience that allergic reaction, they'll hold you there within for at least 15 minutes to be sure you don't have it. But if you do have it, they can just give you a little shot uh, with uh, adrenaline and that immediately stops it and you're fine. Okay, so. All the places that are giving the shots uh, have the ability to do that. It's all ready and in case anybody gets it. And there are just a handful of people all over the world who have been reported to have that. So it's exceedingly rare. And, and that occurs with other vaccines as well. So uh, this is extremely safe. 
You know, Dr. Haley, I talk to people, and as you well know, with Pfizer, you get your first dose, come back in about 21 days. Moderna, it's 28 days. But some people have told me, you know, maybe they weren't feeling well, bad weather, whatever the reason, they were a couple of days late getting that second dose. Is that going to have any significant impact? Not at all. In fact, the manufacturers are saying that there's at least a two or three week window there where you can get it. Now, you don't want to get it too soon, sooner than what they say, but you've got two or three weeks after that to get the second shot. People read about Pfizer, and I think the efficacies in the 90s, and I think Janssen's in the 80s. Does that really have an impact on the efficacy and which vaccine you should take? Yeah, that brings up a really, really interesting question. And I've uh, just a week or so ago, I reviewed all the evidence uh, from the scientific papers on all these vaccines. And here's the story. It's really interesting. Uh, yes, the uh, Janssen, the J&J Janssen vaccine, which is uh, the newest of the three, that one has only about 85% efficacy uh, after the first shot. But it's, remember, it's only a one-shot thing, so that's a big advantage. But after that one shot, it's got about 85% efficacy, and it's got 66% efficacy for having any symptoms from the virus, and 85 to 100% efficacy for severe infection, and 100% efficacy, though, by preventing severe enough illness to go to the hospital and 100% effectiveness for dying of the, of the virus. And it turns out that all of the vaccines have less than 100%, less than 90% efficacy after the first shot, just as the Janssen does. But that's why the Pfizer and Moderna require two shots to uh, boost that immunity up to 94, almost 95% after the second shot. But the take-home lesson here is that all these vaccines, all three vaccines, have 100% efficacy against going to having to go to the hospital or dying. See, so even if the Janssen has lower effectiveness for mild infection, it's still got 100% efficacy against severe infection enough to put you in the hospital or are dying. So it's going to protect you completely from having a severe illness. So that's why I would say whichever shot you are offered, take, because they're all three going to prevent you from going to the hospital and dying. Even though you might get a, a mild case with the Janssen, which you probably wouldn't get with the Pfizer or Moderna, that's just a bad cold, you see. So, so all three turn this into just a bad cold or nothing. I've had people ask me, I got my first dose, which was Pfizer. Is it okay if I get my second dose from Moderna? What do you say to mixing the vaccines? That's a, another good question. We don't really know the answer because there's been no clinical trial uh, completed. There's actually a clinical trial uh, underway to test that idea of mixing the vaccines, but there's no evidence whether that's effective or not. But we know that these vaccines, both those vaccines, are 100% protective from hospitalization or death after the first shot. So, you know, if you get them, they, they won't be quite as effective against mild infection 
uh, with just one shot. And so when you, uh, the, the experts think that it probably mixing them would probably still give you great immunity. In fact, some people have suggested you might even get better immunity by having your first shot of one and your second shot of the other, because the first one would immunize you against one array of the ingredients in the in the in the virus, you know, the, the antigens in the virus, and the other would give you a little bit different coverage. And so the two of them together might give you even broader coverage than than one alone. But uh, I think the bottom line to me is I don't think it's going to matter. And obviously what does matter is saving lives and returning to normal. Back with more with Dr. Robert Haley from UT Southwestern right after this quick break. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And we're continuing our conversation about one of the most important topics in the world today, the COVID-19 vaccination. Our guest, Dr. Robert Haley from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. So let me ask you this. We've heard a lot about COVID-19 and how it's mutated. We know it's done it in Europe, it's done it in Africa, and those are referred as mutations or variants. Do you think the current vaccine will give us protection against these mutations? Uh, well, Steve, I'm glad you asked me today and not a couple of weeks ago because uh, I, I've just uh, learned of uh, two trials that are about to be released uh, where they tested both the Pfizer and the Moderna against at, at least the South African variant, which is uh, probably the, the little bit most worrisome one, and both of them held up extremely well. So they're very effective against the, the variants. Now, I say that, but let me say something more about the variants, the whole concept of variants. Variants arise when lots of people are infected and the virus has lots of opportunities to mutate. It's when it gets into a person and uh, multiplies into huge numbers and keeps multiplying. Every time it reproduces, there's going there. There are some errors that are produced in its uh, genetic material, and it's just a numbers game. The more times that happens, the more likely it is to hit upon a variant that can survive and maybe spread faster and maybe be more virulent, more damaging. Uh, and if so, if it outcompetes all the other viruses, all the other its cousins, then it will become the dominant strain. So the way, the best way for us to prevent the further emergence of these variants is to stop getting infected. And that means just wearing a mask when you're around other people and do social distancing. Those are the key things. There's also hand washing and so forth. But the key is distancing and wearing a mask, if you do that, you're not going to get infected. You're not going to infect other people. And then that virus has that much less chance of producing a variant. So what we're trying to do is as quickly as possible, vaccinate the entire world. Uh, not only our country, but we have to vaccinate the rest of the world because it doesn't matter if that virus produces a variant uh, here or in Africa or in Asia or somewhere else, some developing country that we decided that we didn't need to help out. It can produce a terrible variant there, and that will spread around the world and come back to bite us. So we really need to vaccinate the entire world, and 
we have the, the, the ability to do that, and the World Health Organization is coordinating it, and uh, we need to help that effort because it's in our interest not to spawn more of those variants. Dr. Haley, I've got good friends. They have both had both doses of the vaccine. And now they told me the other day, we're protected. We're going to go out and celebrate our anniversary. We're going to go to a restaurant and we don't even really have to wear a mask. What do you say in that scenario I just gave you? And what about people once they have both doses? What should they do? Okay, actually, the answer to that's pretty simple. The answer is that even after you've been successfully vaccinated with any of these vaccines, there is still a small chance that you could develop the infection, even though it wouldn't make you sick. You might even most likely wouldn't even know you had it, but you could develop the infection. And if you develop it, then you could spread it to others. So the idea is, uh, even though you're not going to be at risk, you need to protect your fellow man your family members, your particularly your elderly relatives, and anybody you come in contact with. And that means you must continue, continue to wear your mask and protect yourself. And we're really only talking about a few more months because uh, it looks like our new administration is going to have plenty of vaccine here shortly and going to be vaccinating everybody. So it's just a few more months, and hopefully we won't have another one of these pandemics for another 100 years. You know, another question I want to ask you, Dr. Haley, and it's a little sensitive. I really look at three categories of people that are reluctant to get the COVID-19 vaccine. One, there are some people that are just anti-vaccines, period. They don't even want to get their kids immunized. Secondly, there are people that say, hey, I'm going to get the vaccine, but I don't want to be the first group to do it. I'm going to wait a few months and see how this kind of plays out, and then I'll probably get my vaccine. And then, of course, there's the third group, and this is quite sensitive, people of color that very unfortunately have been used in medical experiments in the past, uh, have been mistreated, uh, and it's just horrible. But they also are reluctant. To our listeners out there, if they fall in any of those categories I just described, can you encourage them or give them some nuggets of evidence as to why they should get a vaccine? Yeah, that's a tough one, but here's the way I look at it myself, and that is, you know, there is a chance that you could get a certainly a mild side effect. When I took uh, the two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, my wife, the Moderna, we did have some side effects. You know, we had some achiness and uh, a day or two of feeling sort of fatigued. And so I didn't, I didn't like that. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I was kind of wondering, I wish I didn't have to take this because I don't want a day where I'm not very productive. And then you think, wait a minute, which would I rather have a couple of days of being a little bit, feeling a little bit low or a month in the ICU after which I die? That's your choice. And this thing is, it's probably going to infect everyone. Eventually, it will affect everyone who has not been vaccinated. That's the other thing. You're not going to get away without being infected with this thing or vaccinated because it is so infectious. It is not going away. And if we have 30 to 40 percent of the population who elects not to be vaccinated, we're not going to have what's called herd immunity. So that means 
it will still be circulating around and everybody who's not vaccinated will get it. And a certain percentage of those people are going to end up in the intensive care unit on a ventilator for a month, after which they're going to die. And so why, why would you take that chance? Now, I understand, I really do understand the concern of uh, our African-American uh, friends who, you know, look back at the very dismal history of health care of, of all sorts in, for the minority community. That is a terrible problem, and it's something we're all very sad about. But again, uh, look who's getting the vaccine first. Who who jumped at the vaccine, and that's the entire community of healthcare workers. And I can tell you from my experience, I believe in this vaccine. It is safe. It is effective, and it just breaks my heart that somebody would would let other concerns stand in the way because this is going to get you. And I, it just pains me to think that we have this uh, this miraculous uh, prevention and that not everybody's going to take it. Thomas, I'm sure you've got some questions for Dr. Haley. Yes, thank you. Dr. Haley, can you tell us more about messenger RNA? Yeah. Well, first of all, Tom, let me say, I think the the woman scientist who came up with how to make the messenger RNA vaccine work should be a candidate for the Nobel Prize this very next year. This is one of the great breakthroughs in medicine. This is just a little segment of RNA that's very pure with not a lot of other components around it, you know, and that's why it's so safe. And if we do get variant, this is important, if we do find the emergence of variants that get around this vaccine, where the antibodies produced by this vaccine don't protect you. It's very easy. It's like just going into the computer and adding a few little codes to the uh, sequence uh, that makes the spike protein, you know. Just add a few codes that will get around that and reap and produce another vaccine. So it can be very quickly turned into a, new, a booster shot that then everybody would take the booster and then they would be immune to the variant. I mean, this is just a miraculous thing that vaccines can now be produced in a very short time and modified as we need them. It's just an amazing discovery. Well, if that could continue on and that's one of the good benefits that comes from COVID-19, we will certainly accept that gratefully, won't we? Yeah. And let me add one more thing. The reason she was developing this idea was her dream was to make a vaccine against some cancers. That's still her dream, and that looks like it may well be possible. And now you can take a little uh, sequence of DNA from one of those uh, cancers and produce a vaccine and give it to the patient, and they could become immune to their own cancer, uh, and it would quickly kill all the cancer cells without making the person sick. And so that's yet to come. So this is just a miraculous breakthrough. Dr. Haley is a wealth of information. We love having him on the program, and there was so much more. We're going to put it in the podcast. Search up your favorite podcast player and go to the human side of healthcare if you want to drill down on more on the COVID-19 vaccination. Now we're going to talk about electrophysiology and our heart. Wow. Big word, big problem. Let's talk about it next with Dr. Dale Yu from Texas Health Resources Presbyterian Allen. That's next on the human side of healthcare. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're so glad you tuned in with us today. We're going to be talking today about cardiac issues, and we've got with us Dr. Dale Yu. He is with Texas Health Resources Presbyterian in Allen, and he's a cardio-electrophysiologist. Dr. Yu, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, at such a critical time in the world, I think uh, any opportunity we have to disseminate any good information or information of all kinds in healthcare, uh, I'm delighted to do so. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Yu, I'm going to jump right in. What is atrial fibrillation? So atrial fibrillation is something I'm sure a lot of people have heard more about lately, especially since there's so many uh, healthcare-related commercials. And it is definitely what we call the cancer of cardiology. It's the diagnosis we probably all see the most as cardiologists and even more specifically as, as you uh, said very well, basically the field of electrical cardiology. And basically, atrial fibrillation is a condition that affects the electrical portion of the heart. I think we often focus on the plumbing side of things. When people say heart attacks, we are thinking about blockages. But in fact, this is a a much more common issue that we all face at all generations, all sexes, um, basically uh, at different times in our lifetime, potentially. And as an electrical disorder, it basically is when the electrical cells in the heart are disorganized. So instead of sending a normal signal from the top part of the heart from what we call the sinus node, it is originating from one of the million cells that are in the heart itself and can cause for a chaotic rhythm and ultimately cause other problems. What are some of the common signs or symptoms of AFib? Atrial fibrillation can present in so many different ways, which is why it's a pretty tricky disorder. And I'd say about half the patients that we see have symptoms of some kind. If you're one of those patients that actually are unlucky to have symptoms, they are as common as feeling fluttering in the chest, maybe as simple as an extra heartbeat, sometimes a dry cough that came out of nowhere that was random, Um, not usually feeling necessarily that bad in many patients, Uh, But it can be severe in others. It can cause chest pain. It can cause uh, heart failure type symptoms where you get shorter breath, feeling like you're getting a lot of fluid on board, retaining fluid. You could have swelling in your periphery, usually in your legs. And again, you can have a cough that's not only wet or not only dry, but could also be wet as well. So the symptoms are pretty wide and varied. And I think that's what makes it quite difficult as diagnosing atrial fibrillation is the most important part with these symptoms as it changes the course of action and how we treat them. Is there a common characteristic or age group related to people that have AFib? No, not really. And that's the the crazy thing about it. I think traditionally we thought that it is a disorder of the elderly or of people getting older. Uh, and uh, people traditionally in the Medicare age bracket over 65 years old. And of course, large percentage of our patients are over that age group. However, what I've seen in the last decade or so is we're starting to diagnose this in earlier age groups, even as young as 12, 13 years old, and all the way up to, like I said before, Medicare populations well over 65 years old. When you mentioned this earlier, I'm going to drill down just a little bit. Do you see this more in 
women, all men? Is it gender specific? It's pretty much everyone. It is pretty ubiquitous at this time. Um, I, it's both male and female, and again, young and old. And there are other factors that go into it. But because of its uh, symptomatology being so wide and varied, the diagnoses are not always that easy. And sometimes we may blame it on other illnesses patients may have. But, you know, rhythm disorders have to be nailed down, as you mentioned, because they can change the course of what may happen to them as one of the main things we worry about is potential stroke risk associated with AFib. You mentioned stroke, but are there other risk factors associated with AFib? So uh, risk factors uh, can be many. Of course, uh, you know, living the hectic life we do in the pandemic, the level of stress and anxiety that the majority of this globe has faced recently has definitely added to it as this has caused us not necessarily to remain healthy. Uh, as we've heard it many times, pandemic pounds has increased our potential blood sugars, has made us more risky in terms of getting metabolic syndrome or diabetes. Um, this obviously leads to an unhealthy lifestyle that also increases the risk of having cardiac conditions of all kinds including atrial fibrillation. Those that are younger often may be drinking lots of caffeinated beverages. Maybe you and I are also doing that to stay awake. Um, but, you know, that's something that we're seeing much more more recently than we ever have. Again, the growth of that whole supplementation with energy drinks and other beverages and foods. Also, risk factors include potentially having high blood pressure, autonomic dysfunction or issues with the neurologic system, um, they can also be issues with being tall. Uh, we, we know there's a linked association with patients that are severely tall and having atrial fibrillation. And then also those that we think are the healthiest populations, those running marathons, maybe bicyclists, they're super uber healthy folks, if you will, but they also have a relationship with atrial fibrillation. As we see different varieties of atrial fibrillation, and these patients may have what we call vagal AFib. You know, to our listeners out there, if they feel the signs and symptoms, when should they seek medical treatment? That's a very good question. I think the difficult part of AFib specifically, but also of all electrical disorders, is that we don't know what they have going on, and the patient doesn't know what they have going on internally, whether or not they're waging war or not, until they start having these symptoms. So I'd say even if mild symptoms are what they have, they should start to seek out some assistance in determining whether or not what they have is just run-of-the-mill run extra beats. You know, we all can have those called PAC, premature atrial contractions, or premature ventricular contractions, which are denoted by PVCs. But if somebody really is, aside from just having a few flutters in their chest, which is highly explainable by, say, not sleeping or having sleep apnea or having high blood pressure, um, and they, again, are normal, normal, and then having symptoms that may start to become more severe, uh, not only having palpitations, skipped heartbeats in the chest, but maybe starting to feel more fatigued, not able to do what they used to do, um, no get up and go, as I like to call it, uh, maybe shortness of breath, especially if you start having what we call heart failure symptoms, having some swelling peripherally. And again, if you start having chest pain, that is something we definitely worry about because electrical disorders can increase the risk of potentially having those plumbing problems as well. You know, Dr. Yu, you mentioned lifestyle, blood sugar, caffeine. Are there other things people can do to help prevent this? 
Absolutely. I think one of the things that we can all do is try not to get those pandemic pounds, as we're calling it. Start to realize a pandemic is a real thing, uh, number one and foremost. And number two is that it doesn't go away that easily because it's 2021. As we all know now, it is not the time for the pandemic to just leave us so quickly and easily. And because of that, I think we need to get back to attention to being healthy, whether that means regular exercise. We'd like to recommend 150 minutes a week of aerobic exercise. We'd like to emphasize on eating healthy. That's low cholesterol foods, maybe low carbohydrate foods, trying to maintain a good weight for your height and being able to check on yourself pretty much on a daily basis. Also means that you should be able to keep that blood pressure under check, that you're not telling yourself just one more snack, one more day, because we are in this pandemic. Also means if you have things like sleep apnea, maybe you snore a lot, maybe you don't have any restful sleep, that you get this diagnosed and treated. If you have early diabetes, that you're on a very strict regimen uh, for your diet and making sure that you see an endocrinologist or an expert in diabetes pretty much doing all the things that we know are right and good for us. But I think it's even more important to do so, especially in this pandemic, because you may not have the chance to see your doctor as frequently as a pandemic is here and people are scared to go see their doctors, may have skipped their regular visits. So at minimum, maybe doing a telemedicine visit with their primary care doctor or their specialist in order to keep a check on their health, I think is very important. You know, you raise an excellent point, Dr. Yu. We've been dealing with COVID for a year now. Have you seen any correlation in your patients related to COVID-19 and their current condition? So, absolutely. And I think as every day has gone on and this year has gone longer and longer, since we first had our first cases of uh, COVID-19, we definitely have seen many correlations, especially with cardiovascular disease processes and COVID-19. I think namely is atrial fibrillation. I mean, several studies have looked into this now. The correlation is very strong. The prevalence is about 20%. One in five patients who have had COVID-19, whether it was a weak, mild case of it versus a very symptomatic case of it, where they've been in the hospital, you know, one in five of these patients have had atrial fibrillation occurrences or detected to have it uh, by a professional of some kind in their doctor's office or in the hospital. And if you get into the patients that are even sicker and those who have died, they have actually had uh, atrial fibrillation up awards about 40% of the time. So definitely a strong correlation between this. We also know that with COVID-19, we've had an increase in the thickening of the blood, if you will. So increased risk of having clotting both peripherally or in your lung, which can be deadly and fatal or potentially leading to a stroke. So there is this very strong correlation between cardiovascular disease processes and this COVID-19. This is Dr. Dale Yu. He's a cardioelectrophysiologist at Texas Health Presbyterian Allen. This topic is especially important to me because about seven years ago, I developed atrial fibrillation. My dad had it since his early 50s, and that's about the same time I got mine. And I do think that stress was a big contributing factor. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Yu about various lifestyle contributors that can cause electrical problems in our heart. This was part of an hour-long interview with Dr. Yu. 
The rest of it in its entirety is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. We're going to play a game to help your heart next on The Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation about our heart with Dr. Dale Yu. He's a cardioelectrophysiologist with Texas Health Resources Presbyterian Allen. Dr. Yu, let's play a little game here. I'm going to just list some things. You tell us how important it is for atrial fibrillation or really for our heart in general, but for a good, healthy heart. All right. First of all, let's do weight. How important is that? One to ten. I'll say eight. And uh, the reason that's important is because uh, increasing weight increases your chance of having metabolic syndrome, which is prediabetes or getting diabetes. And of course, diabetes and heart disease are directly related. What about if weight is an eight, where does stress? Stress uh, would probably be, um, I'd say, it's a, this is a tough game, by the way. Um, I'd say it's <laughs> it probably, is tough. It's <laughs> tough for all of us, right? <laughs> I'd, I'd say that stress is probably a nine. And the reason I put it above weight is this. Uh, there are conditions which we know of um, that actually stress can kill you or give you a heart attack. We do know this. There's one that's n- notably known as Takasubo uh, and named after this Japanese jar where an octopus gets stuck in it. And basically your heart balloons out because of the stress level on your heart. Basically it gives you a heart attack without having a blockage, which is, Amazing, but terrible at the same time. So stress definitely can impact you and also give you a deadly arrhythmias as well. All right. So we've got weight at an eight, stress at a nine. What about healthy diet or poor diet? Sure, diet. Um, and I'll put that at a five. Of course, it's, it's an important factor, but less than the two that you've already mentioned. I, I think our bodies are pretty resilient, but if you start getting too much weight and you start having metabolic disease uh, with diabetes that goes into number one, so you go up to that eight. Um, but I'd say it's a five. And then what about cardiovascular exercise? Exercise, we'll put there, you know, with basically diet, we'll put that at a five. So it is important, but and it is more for prevention, right? So I put, I guess, the things that take a lifetime to help you or hurt you. Uh, at a lower number, but still very important. So getting aerobic exercise, I think I mentioned 115 minutes of aerobic exercise a week would be very helpful in trying to keep you fit and, and ward off coronary disease and other arrhythmias. Uh, but it, it is important, just less important than the two mentioned above. All right, now I'm going to give you a package of three and we'll break them down. Remember now, we've got diet at five, <laughs> stress at eight, uh, stress at nine, weight at eight, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco. Um, I, I would like to break those up uh, with caffeine, alcohol kind of together, and uh, and tobacco. Uh, the effects are different uh, time stages, if you will. So caffeine and alcohol can directly affect you as well as uh, acutely and chronically. And I, I put those things up there. Uh, let's put them at a seven. Uh, so what caffeine does is it can dehydrate you. Obviously, it's a di- natural diuretic. Uh, it also increases the adrenaline in your body, which increases the risk of having arrhythmias. Um, and that, that is an issue that we've talked about above. Alcohol in itself is uh, also diuretic and makes you dehydrated and get rid of some of the important electrolytes in your body. And so that that's an issue, as we mentioned, because you do want the right amount of electrolytes 
in the body. And alcohol can have a chronic effect as well, not only causing end organ damage like in your liver, but is also a toxin on the heart, increase the risk of having heart failure, structural changes, and obviously arrhythmias. And then lastly is tobacco. And tobacco uh, has more of a long-term effect. It can affect you acutely, but we're most namely talking about disease in the lungs. And I think I mentioned it, that the lungs and the heart are directly plugged into each other. So if you do have bad lungs or disease of the lungs, it can make your heart have to work harder. And as it works harder, it increases the risk of heart disease development, heart failure, as well as coronary disease directly and indirectly, as well as arrhythmias. That is awesome information. Well, two things that we can control, stress and our diet, are the two top areas that you mentioned. Right. And our whole world right now is geared to stress. What advice do you give your patients on addressing the number one issue? Yes, it, stress is, it can kill you. We'll start it there. Stress can definitely kill you in many different ways. And, you know, I, I think in, when you're in a pandemic or not, uh, stress is always going to impact us. Every human being on earth is going to be impacted, and, and especially now. And I tell people to find some time in their lives, in their busy lives, every day for themselves to reflect, being able to have timeouts. And I tell people, take 20 minutes of the day to take a timeout to reflect, to Ask yourself if you're being healthy, maybe doing some meditation, yoga, non-impact type of activities that everyone can do, whether or not they have major health issues or none at all. And being able to understand that with a stressful life makes for quick and easy decisions on food and diet. Um, we drink a lot of caffeine, energy drinks to give us a boost, that you're picking things up in the drive through lane, especially in pandemics. Maybe we're not cooking as much, although some people are, but not eating as well despite that. I think we really need to take a good look at ourselves and understand, hey, what was my weight before the pandemic? What was my diet like before that? And also asking ourselves some difficult questions about, hey, I know I'm not happy, but is this because of the pandemic or is there something else going on? Because we do know mental disease has taken a toll on us as human beings worldwide because of everything that's going on. And mental disease can make for worsening diets and other lifestyle issues that can give us heart disease and other things that may make us die at an earlier age or have a lot more morbidity because of it. And you are only born with this one body. And I always tell people that unlike a bottle of wine, it does not get better with age. Our bodies will continue to break down, and we just need to face that fact. And with that, you want to take care of your body like you would your car or your house. But your body is sometimes the thing that's neglected the most. Dr. Yu, you've just done an outstanding job answering our questions, but I want to ask you this. What should I have asked you about AFib that I didn't that you would like to share with our listeners? That's a good thought there. So I'll say that, first of all, in terms of AFib or atrial fibrillation, that patients and future prospective patients should really understand that it is a disorder that affects us all at all age groups. Um, and sometimes it is a hereditary condition as well, meaning that once we diagnose this in younger patients of ours, they start to go back and talk to their relatives their families and realize that they've had some 
conduction or abnormality disorders as well, uh, and they start to relate them. I guess it never came up at the Thanksgiving table or over Christmas, but they start to realize there's a lot of members of the family that may have heart disease in the electrical form and not necessarily in the plumbing form, and these extra beads can be something that could ultimately be fatal or really have high morbidity. I think one of the things I want most patients to understand is that if you think you're healthy and having disturbances, extra beats, skipped beats, heartbeats that really shouldn't be there and you're making excuses of why they may be there, uh, whether or not it's one extra cup of coffee in the morning or what I hear a lot is, you know, it's been very stressful with the pandemic and with my job and working at home and kids and et cetera, et cetera. And my heart does this thing where it flip-flops in my chest here and there, and I just thought that's just run-in-the-mill stress, that sometimes we should just have it checked out because, you know, it's as simple as putting a, a little monitor on the patient and then go back to their, their life really easily, and I can detect whether or not they're having not only atrial fibrillation but other disorders such as what we call SVT or supraventricular tachycardias that are short circuits you may be born with that may cause further problems in life and also to make sure that patients realize that they need to continue seeing all the doctors they need to see whether it's over a phone or in person taking the medications they need to do and really taking the pandemic seriously as as we've already alluded to getting COVID-19 can be the thing that changes the game for the patient as I, I don't know how many times we've seen this especially lately so many patients have been healthy, quote-unquote healthy, coming in. They get COVID-19, and now they're lying in a bed in the hospital, hopefully not ventilated, but unfortunately that story has been too common. So um, I think in terms of COVID-19, uh, one of the things that uh, most of us healthcare providers, if not all of us, have been really harping on pushing is to go get your vaccination when the time affords you and really be proactive about it because the government and the hospitals and your doctors may not be able to come find you and just put you on a list ourselves as there's just so many people out there who need our attention now. And that's something that I definitely would want people to do and take a proactive role in. Thank you, Dr. Dale Yu from Texas Health Presbyterian Allen. Great comments about our heart. In fact, there's a full hour of that interview on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. If you would like a really deep dive with a wonderful cardiologist, there you go. Just go on your favorite podcast app to The Human Side of Healthcare. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week here on 1080 KRLD and radio.com.